Well, welcome to another gathering of Restoration Church. Restoration Church unplugged this morning, uh, as it were. Uh, so hopefully you can hear me in the back. We have no amplification this morning. That is on purpose. If you can't, there are plenty of seats right here. Uh, I will try to use my Baptist preacher voice this morning and uh, preach so that all can hear. Well, here we are. We're on the cusp of another year. Can you believe it? Yet again. Some of us look back on 2018, I'm sure, with sheer joy, and others of us, or there's a part of us that are just glad it's over. And as I was thinking about what what can I preach that be helpful as we move into another new year? Because all of us think, as we look this next year, we might have resolutions, we might have plans, but there's fears, there's worries, there's hopes, there's dreams. And so as, as we look to a new year, whatever occupies their mind, I'm, I'm guessing there's at least two things. Excitement and uncertainty. So we're excited about the plans and possibilities. We're excited about new opportunities. And, and many of you, I'm sure, have already started thinking about readjusting those rhythms and making those changes that you're just sure are going to bring the desired effects that you've been just waiting for January 1st. Yet, there's also part of us that's marked by uncertainty. What will happen to those plans? What possibilities will fall through? What will happen when those changes don't bring exactly what we'd hope for? What unexpected trials that you have no idea about right now will you have to face in 2019? Here's the answer. I have no idea. And neither do you. Because none of us can tell the future. And if we're honest, we actually control a lot less than we think we do. We cannot control what happens around us. We cannot control what happens to us. And so how are we supposed to live with a joyful certainty? How are we supposed to look into 2019 with a confident hope that remains no matter if your resolutions fail on January 7th? No matter what hardships you face, no matter what joys come and go. Here's how. We can face the unknown because of God who is known. And God is not only known, He is near. And not only is He near, He is sovereign and He is steadfast. God is sovereign. He's in complete control of all things and He is steadfast. He has made promises for the good of his people. And he's fulfilling every single one of them in Christ. So turn to your neighbor and say, God is sovereign. Like you mean it. <laughs> turn to your other neighbor and say, God is steadfast. Yes, he is. So we can face, I know that's weird for us, we normally don't do that, it's okay. We can face the unknown because of the sovereign, steadfast God who is known. That's our main idea this morning. To look at that, we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 20. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. It's probably in the sticky pages of the Old Testament. So, before Laura's going to come and read that passage for us, a bit of context. First and, Chron- first and Second Chronicles tell the story of God's people. The very first word in Chronicles is Adam. The very last is you find God's people in exile. Yet there's a promise that God's people would once, be, once again be in God's place. 
restored to his presence. And so Chronicles is a divine editorial of God's faithfulness to his faithless people. When we come to 2 Chronicles 20, Israel is divided. You have the ten tribes of the north, Israel, and two tribes of the south, Judah. The king at the center of our passage is a man named Jehoshaphat. He's the king of Judah. And while he is not perfect, he was a pretty good king. In chapter 17 we read, Jehoshaphat's heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Now listen as Laura reads 2 Chronicles 20, and see if you can trace the themes of God's sovereignty and God's steadfast love as she reads the passage for us. After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, and from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, in Gadad. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord, before the new court, and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all, all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel, and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it, and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benai, son of Jael, son of Mattaniah, the Levite of the son of Asa, sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great force, for the battle is not yours, but God. Tomorrow go down to them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of hills. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jerusalem. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites of the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And they rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord, and praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devouring them to destruction. And when they had made an end 
of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde, and behold, there were dead bodies laying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. When, when there were, they were three days in taking the spoil, it was so much. On the fourth day they assembled in the valley of Barakat, for they were blessed, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of that place has been called the valley of Barakat to this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps and lyres and trumpets to the house of the Lord. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had found against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. Let's pray. Father, bless the preaching of your word. As we gather here this morning, remind us of who you are. Remind us of what you have done and what you will do. Because of your love for us in Christ. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. When my family and Nathan's family moved up about 10 years ago to start Restoration Church, I had no idea what was going to happen. And so this was one of those passages that surprised me out of the Bible that I continually and repetitively have gone through over the years. In fact, I've preached this passage before, a different sermon, but the same passage because it's so rich in what it tells us. And so let's just walk through and see the sovereign, steadfast love of God and how that might apply to our lives. So the Lord is sovereign and steadfast. Look again at verse 1. And, and notice the first two words. <clears throat> After this. After what? Well, Jehoshaphat had been leading the people to honor and to worship God. He'd been bringing about moral and social change, seeking justice. In today's context, Jehoshaphat would have been a church revitalizer. He had brought back faithful preaching and meaningful discipleship and evangelism and social engagement. And it's after this, a coalition of enemies come against him. It would have been easy for Jehoshaphat to get angry at God and say something like, God, what kind of deal is this? I try to honor you and obey you, and this is how you repay me? This isn't fair, God. Don't you love me? Or he could have just doubted God altogether. God is not in control since these things are happening. Maybe God is abandoning me, or he's weak, or he's unable to control these things. But that's not how Jehoshaphat responds. Three times in verses 3 and 4, we read that Jehoshaphat and all of Judah seek the Lord. They're seeking the Lord. That's the covenant name for God. The God who has a never stopping, never giving up, always forever love for his people. The God who is steadfast in love for his people. So instead of getting angry at God or doubting God, he humbles himself before God. Jehoshaphat calls the people of God to seek God in prayer. And they pray together. And how does Jehoshaphat begin his prayer? Look at verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are not you God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms and the nations in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Do you see how he starts his prayer? He starts with a declaration of who God is. You are God. You rule the nations. You rule the kingdoms. In your hand or power might, none can withstand you. 
He's declaring the complete and utter sovereignty of God. And as Jehoshaphat says these things, he joins the chorus of Scripture. So we read things like this in Daniel. God does according to his will. None can stay his hand. Or Isaiah. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The Psalms. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that he pleases. All means all. Or as we remember all the way back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I could go on. But if we want to understand who God is, we have to first understand that he is totally and utterly sovereign. He is in control of all things at all times, always and forever. So from the arrangement of the stars in the sky to the hairs on your head or lack of them, he's in control. A bird doesn't fall from the air. Lightning does not strike. Rain doesn't drop without God's consent. Nations rise and fall under the mighty hand of God. God plans our days before we are born. God's potent power is absolute. There are no rivals. And Jehoshaphat understands this, and it drives him to gather with God's people and pray. So understanding God's sweet sovereignty moves Jehoshaphat from passive fear to fervent prayer. It'll do the same for us. It'll do the same for us. And after declaring God's sovereignty, that is, who God is, notice what Jehoshaphat does next. Jehoshaphat recalls what God does. He recalls God's steadfast love. Look at verse 7. Did not you, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And he goes on, he lists how God has been working. And, and notice the number of times in this prayer you hear personal intimate language. Our God. Your people. Abraham is called God's friend. So it's not just that God is known, it's that God is near. And Jehoshaphat evidently is a student of Scripture. His prayer is laced with Scripture, and he knows that back in Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham. And it was a promise to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham and his family. And so he begins to trace the tangible evidences of God's steadfast love as it's been working out to fulfill his purposes. And so for Jehoshaphat, God's sovereignty is not just a theological concept to read about in a book. It is a present reality in his life. And it's important to see that Jehoshaphat, the sovereignty of God is sweet to him because he knows it results in steadfast love for God's people. So it's a sweet sovereignty. And all this leads to the climax of his prayer in verse 12. Look there in your Bibles, verse 12. Oh, our God. You're at that personal language. Oh, our God. 
Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. So notice Jehoshaphat is not just seeking help from the Lord. He is doing that. But more importantly, he's seeking the Lord himself. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. I've prayed that prayer a lot. Specifically in the past 10 years. God, I have no idea what to do. But my eyes are on you. And so in the midst of hardship, Jehoshaphat looks up to who God is. God, you are sovereign. You're in control of all things. He looks back to what God has done. God, you are the steadfast promise keeper. I'm resting in what you have done. And I'm trusting in what you will do. All the while looking to you. I want to enjoy you. And so we can almost hear Jehoshaphat say, The Lord is sovereign and steadfast in love. Therefore, trust Him in your trial. And that's our, our first implication. The Lord is sovereign and steadfast. Therefore, trust Him in your trials. So keep this in mind next year as unexpected trials come into your life. You can face the unknown because of the sovereign, steadfast God who is known. But we probably don't have to wait till next year, do we? Maybe you're like Jehoshaphat right now. You've been striving to honor and to please God, and yet you face a difficult trial. You feel as though there's a great horde coming against you. So maybe it's personal illness. Maybe it's the illness or a diagnosis of a loved one. Maybe it's financial hardship, a strained relationship, a desire for a spouse that God has not yet met. A desire for a child that God has not allowed you to become pregnant. Maybe the job offer fell through or it never came. Perhaps it's the unrelenting pressures of parenting or the unending stress of work. Maybe this morning it's the emotional weight of something that's happened to you. You've been taken advantage of. You've been violated. You've been grievously sinned against. And it's weighing on you. And you do not know what to do. You're broken. You're hurt. Maybe you're saying, Joe, if God is in control, and if he loved me, he wouldn't let this happen to me. Well, I do not have an answer for why God is allowing or will allow a specific trial in your life. I don't know. But I do know this. The God who Jehoshaphat appealed to is the same God that we can appeal to. And the God who is sovereign and steadfast to Jehoshaphat is the same God who is sovereign and steadfast in our own lives. And so as you read Scripture this year, maybe pick up one of the Bible reading booklets and just make your way through Scripture. And as you read Scripture, just trace the themes of God's sovereignty and steadfast love. Rejoice as you see God's faithfulness in the lives of Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Ruth and King David and Esther and others. And notice that none of these men or women were completely removed from trials and hardships. Not a one. 
yet they walk through the unknown by trusting the sovereign, steadfast God who is known. And even when their faith failed, God's faithfulness did not. We can look back into our own life. Look back how God has worked in your own life. And most importantly, we can look back to the cross, can't we? Is this not the display of God's sovereign, steadfast love? The crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The cross is the beautiful mosaic with every brushstroke painting sovereign, steadfast love. And so like the sun breaking through on a cloudy day, the cross gives perspective to all of our trials. When we view our circumstances in light of a cross in Jerusalem, an empty tomb on earth, an occupied throne in heaven. We understand the gospel is not just a little bit of good news that fits into the rest of the bad news of our lives. No, the gospel makes good news out of every aspect of our lives. So brothers and sisters, look up to the God who is sovereign. Look up and look back to his steadfast love, it endures forever. Even when you can't trace God's hand, you can trust his heart, as the old pastor said. And so we don't we will not know a whole lot of things like why stuff is happening. We're not going to know. But we know why not. And it's not because God is uninvolved or unloved. In Christ. You are loved and lavished. You are adored and cherished. God, get this, God is so sovereign and steadfast in His love that He is working all things out so that we, church, can be in His presence for eternity. That's amazing. Amen? God loves you and He likes you and He enjoys you. He's not disappointed with you all the time. Think about it. He's working out all things so you can spend eternity in His presence together with all God's people. Because He is sovereign and steadfast. <clears throat> the Bible tells us of God's sweet sovereignty and personal providence. Not only so we can understand He's in control of the world's history, but so that we also can trust that He's writing our story. So last week, I read an article at this time. The Lord gave us a casket for Christmas. It began this way. Two weeks ago today, my son Titus died on our bed. He was two, two days away from being six months old. It was not the beginning to December that I was anticipating. It goes on. Now I finally know what it feels like to have nothing to hold on to. But the goodness, mercy, and sovereignty of God. And to cling to it for dear life until you finally feel the hurricane begin to subside. This Christmas, some will be missing as we gather as a family in open presence. There will be tears and heartache as we gather as a family to sing songs and gather around the table. But while our hearts will be heavy, we are not without hope and a comfort. That's a heart that is anchored in the sovereign, steadfast love of God. So Restoration Church, 
No matter what we face in 2019, we can face the unknown because the sovereign steadfast God who is known. So let's be a church. Let's be a church that admits our weaknesses. Let's be a church that admits our struggles. Let's be a church that admit we're powerless. Let's be a church that gathers and prays together, resting in who God is and what God has promised to do, so we don't have to race around anxiously pretending to be something we're not. My non-Christian friends, maybe you doubt that God is good. Maybe you doubt that God exists altogether. That's you. I wonder where you have hope in the midst of trials. I'm sure there are times in your life when you felt powerless. What you do when those times come, where do you look for hope and purpose? What if there was a grand hope and what if there was a gracious God? And what if this God was not just powerful over your hardship, but purposeful in it? I read that God will rarely protect us from what he can perfect us through. So God is purposeful. And what what if God, if this God was not some abstract idea, but near, so near that he put on human flesh and entered into your deepest suffering and sorrow that he might know and bring comfort and hope? What if that were true? Would that be good news? Well, this is what sits at the heart of the Christian faith. That Jesus Christ, fully God, took on the fullness of humanity, lived in all the weaknesses, suffering, and sorrow of human flesh, yet lived a perfect life and died, yet rose again, conquering the great horde that was against us that we might have hope. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me. I'll get or talk to the person who brought you. This is the hope that we have as Christians. So I'm inviting you this morning to turn from any false hope and come to Christ who is the one true hope. As we continue God's sovereignty and steadfast love, we see it some more. So as Jehoshaphat and Judah are praying, God sends a spirit, the Holy Spirit, and gives his word to his people. In verse 15 we read, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Drop down to verse 17. You will not need to fight this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Joseph prays, God, I'm powerless, I have no idea what to do. God says, it's okay. The battle is not yours. It is mine. See the salvation of the Lord. It's really interesting to note, if you were to go read Exodus 14, when God brings his people to the Red Sea, delivering them from slavery to Pharaoh, same exact language. Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. We also see it in 1 Samuel 17 where David is fighting Goliath. It's not your battles, it's God's. Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. And so, I just, I'm wondering, perhaps God is using the same exact language to remind us, to remind them, He's always been sovereign over our deliverance. He's always steadfast in His love. He is with us. 
And how do the people respond? Verse 18 tells us. They fall down worshiping the Lord. And their worship turns into joyful obedience. Look at verse 20. They rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. Do you see that? The very thing God commanded is what they did. And notice... They didn't like, well, this is God's battle, so we're just going to sleep until noon, and then we'll get up and go on our way. <laughs> like, God, you got this. No, what's the text say? They rose when? Early. They were eager. Like, God, we can't wait to obey you. We can't wait to see what you are going to do. And so they worshipfully obey the Lord. Verse 20 tells us, Jehoshaphat says, keep believing, keep trusting. Keep believing, keep trusting. Then in verse 21, we read this. <clears throat> And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire. And as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. So I've never been in the military, but I am pretty sure this is not standard military tactics. To lead the front line, not with soldiers, but with singers. And what are they singing about? God, your steadfast love endures forever. This is a picture of complete and total trust. These men, this nation, these people are staking their lives on the character of God and the truthfulness of His Word. Your battle plan is to sing? Are you serious? Just, just that's like, yeah, I'm serious. God is sovereign. His love is steadfast and endures forever. The battle is his. The victory is sure. And so we're so sure we're going to walk out and we're going to meet our enemy with songs of thanks. That's risky. In fact, we might even be tempted to say that's foolish. And it would be. If God was not sovereign, it would be stupid if God was not steadfast in love. But He is. God is sovereign. God is steadfast. And so we read in verses 22 and 23 God answers His promise. All three nations, Moab and Ammon turn against Mount Seir, and then they turn against each other and defeat one another. And so we read at the end of verse 23, they all help to destroy one another. And if you drop down to verse 29, you'll see all of this was done and it magnifies the name of the Lord among the nations. They just show up and watch. They see God's promises for the good of His people and the glory of His name. They walk in joyful obedience. Joyful obedience that looks risky and foolish. And here's our second implication. The Lord is sovereign and steadfast. Therefore, take risk for the glory of His name. But when I say risk, I don't really mean risk. 
we think air quotes around risks. Why? Because with the sweet sovereignty of the Lord, there's no such thing as a risk. If you're walking in obedience to Him, it only looks risky from a worldly perspective. It looks foolish if this world is our home. And it's important to remember that our obedience does not earn God's love. I think sometimes like we have this view of God loves the person that leaves their home and goes to some foreign country more because they're risky than we who just stay here and work a normal nine to five. That's foolish. That's not the way God works. Our obedience, our radical actions do nothing to earn God's love. It's not like he's going to love you more if you go to an unreached people group. No, his love is steadfast and remains the same. We cannot earn his love. God's steadfast love always comes first. So God says the same thing to us that he says to his people here. See the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Then he directs our eyes to a cross where Christ hung paying for our sin. That's steadfast love. And when we understand that, when we understand the Lord has acted for us in Christ, we worshipfully obey Him. And we understand He's sovereign and steadfast, and so we take risks for the glory of His name. And God never fails those who worshipfully obey Him. To be clear, this does not mean, this does not mean you'll be delivered from suffering or death. Think of Jehoshaphat. We begin this chapter, they have great hordes coming against them. You know where he is by the end of the chapter? Dead. And yet he obeyed God. He was not removed from suffering and from death. This afternoon, go read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a list of people who understood the sovereign, steadfast love of God and pursued God. They took risk for the glory of his name. You know what happened to them? Some were tortured, others suffered, mocking and beatings, imprisonment, and some were sawn in two. The Apostle Paul, joyful obedience, remarkable suffering. The first Christian martyr, Stephen, he was stoned to death. You remember why? For faithfully preaching, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, is the only way to know God. And if that's not convincing, think about Jesus. He was not kept safe because he obeyed. We are not any better than our soul. But this is the message of the cross. God uses what is risky and foolish, what is weak and shameful, to defeat the great one. So God's sovereignty and steadfast love does not guarantee your immediate security. Only your eternal security. The gospel is not one of immediately receiving, but is eternally gaining all that God has for us in Christ. So when we build our hope on this, 
and the sovereign, steadfast love, the infinite, unchanging, holy, triune God. We can be like the Apostle Paul and, and cry out with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and die again. That's a great freedom. So Restoration Church, what might this look like in our lives in 2019? What might this risky, foolish obedience for the glory of God look like in our lives in 2019? Here are a few things, perhaps. Resolve to share the gospel with that coworker, classmate, family member, neighbor. Risk your reputation. Face the fear of rejection. Recognizing your hope is not built on their shifting approval, but God's enduring steadfast love. Renounce the American dream and resolve to spend at least two years on the global mission field. If you're a member of our church, we can train you and send you. Give generously and sacrificially to this church and to other gospel works. To the world, that looks foolish and risky. Yet it's in joyful, worshipful obedience to advance the gospel and hallow God's Think about pursuing adoption or foster care or safe families. Show a needy child the glimmer of hope God the Father has shown you. And if you can't do that, personally help those who are doing it in our church. Several people are pursuing adoption or active in DC 127. If you want to know more about that, you can talk to Christy Coster or Megan Greider. If you don't know who they are, come find me and I will gladly connect you with them. I think in January we're going to have the booth also for DC-127 in the four-year for a couple of things. Or consider turning down that promotion or delaying the, the pursuit of that advanced degree so you can remain at Restoration Church in Washington, D.C. That looks risky and foolish to the world. But what if you committed to staying here making disciples that delight in the supremacy of Christ? Maybe that's what you do this year. Whatever it is, don't be lulled to sleep by a cozy Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. As one pastor said, risk is right. It's better to lose your life than to waste it. So remember, remember this. This world as it is is not our home. Let's remember what we just celebrated at Christmas is only the start to the story, not the end. And the story does not end with a baby in a manger. It doesn't end with a man on a cross. It doesn't end with an empty tomb on a hillside. It ends when Jesus, the sovereign king of kings, comes back and says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Our hope beyond the grave pries our fingers from holding on to the false promise of this world so we can be risky and foolish even from a world perspective as we pursue joyful obedience. So Restoration Church, I do, I praise God for so many of you in the ways you are firmly rooted and, and joyfully obeying God so you understand He's sovereign and steadfast. So let's not grow weary. This is not a, a kind of guilt you into anything. This is a, let's keep going. By God's grace, we do well. Let's keep going. Let's press forward. Let's not grow weary in evangelizing, discipling, praying, obeying, giving, going, sending. By God's grace, let 2019 be marked by this all the better. For my non-Christian friends, I wonder if this sounds appealing to you. Like a freedom that is so removed from the cares and wants of the world. And if it is, I know why. It's because you were made just like me. 
were made to savor the glory of God. So don't feast upon the crumbs of the world. Come feast upon the gravity and the gladness of God. And that starts by trusting God's sovereign, steadfast love shown in Christ. When you do that, when you trust in the day, when you trust in the day, and if you do, you will not only be able to navigate the trials of your life, but you'll have greater joy in the triumphs of life. That's the third thing that we see here this morning. Look at verse 24. When Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness, they looked toward the horde. And behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground, none had escaped. The Lord fulfills His promise. And verse 25 tells us, there were so much spoils of victory, it took them three days to gather it. Verse 26, what do they do? They praise God. Then if you read verse 27, their praise doesn't stop on the battlefield. It goes all the way back to Jerusalem with them, where they continue praising God. They recognize the sovereignty of God, and so they praise Him. This story is bookended with the people worshiping God. In verse 5, they assemble and worship God in the midst of trials. And now at the end, verse 27, they're back praising God in the midst of triumph because of the sovereign, steadfast love of God. And so the Lord is sovereign and steadfast. Therefore, treasure Him and thank Him in your triumphs. See, we're often quick to run to God and help in trials, but are we as quick to thank Him and treasure Him in our trials? Are we as quick to do that? Here's the thing. If Satan cannot get you to doubt God's goodness through the trials of your life, he'll try to distract you with treasures in your life. If he can't damn you with your sin, he'll make you doubt God with your struggles or he'll distract you with stuff. Thankfulness to God is the antidote. So like the people here in 2 Chronicles 20, God's sovereign steadfast love should drive us to thankful, worship-filled, joy-erupting, praise-offering hearts, treasuring from above his lips, and thanking him for his gifts. So for any of you that have had dinner in our home, you know, one of the ways we try to do this is, first of all, as often as possible, we try to eat dinner together as a family, often with other friends gathered around. And what we have to do, or what we get to do, before we eat, is every person seated at the table goes around and gives at least one thing they're thankful for. And so it can be the weighty and wonderful, and sometimes it is, like, I'm thankful for God's grace and salvation. Other times, it can be the trite and temporary. I'm thankful for Skittles and Krispy Kreme donuts. Which we are, right? And we don't do this because like the Kraft family is super spiritual. We do this because the Kraft family is super forgetful. And I want my heart to treasure God. And so I want to regularly recount and treasure Him and Thank Him for His sovereign, steadfast love over the weighty and wonderful and over the mundane, but it's still really enjoyable. And so are there areas in your life that are going well that you need to give God praise for? And if so, let me invite you like the people here to share that with other people. 
Gather with God's people. Don't just do it alone. Gather with people and, and give God praise together. And as you talk to other church members, ask them questions like this. Don't let your questions to one another just be, how's your quiet time? How's your Bible reading? How's your prayer? What sin is God showing you? Those are good questions. But they shouldn't be the only question. We should also be asking, how is God's sovereign, steadfast love near to you? How is it fueling your love for Christ? Ask each other those questions as well. And then rejoice. We don't have to be just be a bunch of curmudgeons that are only worried about sin. If we can rejoice in God's sovereign, steadfast love, it's a beautiful thing. So Restoration Church, may God's sovereign, steadfast love sustain us in our trials and help us savor God all the more in our trials. So this chapter reminds us that we can confidently walk through the unknown because of the sovereign, steadfast God who is known. We can trust Him in our trials. We can take risks for the glory of His name. We can treasure Him in our trials. This chapter reminds us to savor the steadfast love of God shown to us in Christ. For God says, this battle is not yours. It is the Lord's. See the salvation of the Lord our new day. So here's the question. Illustrate church with the steadfast love of God planning our greatest good and the sovereignty of God ensuring that it happens. What do we lack? Nothing. So enter 2019 with joy and hope. Enter the unknown by looking to the God who is known and near. And he's not only known and near, he is sovereign. And he has a steadfast love and endures forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are sovereign and steadfast. We praise you that even when we are powerless and we do not know what to do, we can look to you and know that your promises will endure forever. As we enter 2019, let us celebrate the joy we have in Christ, draw near to him and to each other during times of hardship. Build us up all the more that we might glorify your name together. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.